Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Content is king. It's almost a worn out saying these days, but since it was first coined, it has grown into an absolute truth. Whether you are trying to attract customers or retain customers, it's become an integral part of a lot of businesses around the world and boy have some businesses really embraced it. Take Red Bull, for example. It could be argued that they're just as much a production company as they are a beverage company. And even if that isn't strictly true, there is no doubt the content, which is mostly event-based, is all designed to attract and engage consumers and then convert them into paying customers. However, for the majority of rights holders, it's been a very slow process to get on board with content. And even those doing it well now lag behind the general marketing community. For what reason, I don't know. It might be the strong TV deals where the money is guaranteed over long periods. It might be a lack of in-house skills on top of tight budgets, or it just might be simply no executive vision and buy-in. Or it might be a combination of all those things, or maybe even something else. Social media and other digital channels clearly, as we all know, offer the opportunity to reach audiences more easily and, and quite often more cheaply, even if they are geographically dispersed and looking at the landscape now and in my uh, 60 second google research there are excluding dating sites 210 social media sites but even what is social media and what is broadcast media is very blurred is youtube a social media platform or is it a broadcaster does it even matter surely the most important thing is creating the right content for a well-defined target audience and getting it to them through channels that they want to consume it through when they want to consume it. If you achieve that, then you will have great success and that in turn becomes very attractive to sponsors. Or if you're a brand, knowing that a rights holder can deliver content well to an engaged audience provides an opportunity with a partner who truly gets it. Now, there's no doubting that there is a trend here with content and rights holders, and that's why Nielsen's Commercial Trends in Sports 2017 report lists trend number two as IP owners taking control of content and the conversation. Now, that is very much an easier said than done scenario, but never fear, on the show is Max Barnett, Global Head of Digital at Nielsen Sports, who joins us to discuss this trend in detail. Welcome to episode 41 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and... 41. It's kind of exciting to have episode number 50 in our sights. A shout out to Sean Brown, General Manager Commercial at Brisbane Roar in the A-League. Sean shot me a message on LinkedIn to say that he's loving the podcast and he's found it a wealth of knowledge. So thanks, Sean. That's very much appreciated. Glad you're enjoying the podcast and uh, good luck to the Brisbane Roar in the upcoming season. The rest of you, why not be cool like Sean and send me a message and I'll give you a shout out as well. You know where to find us. Now, before we hear from Max, also joining us on the podcast, as usual, is our MD, Mark Thompson, who, whenever we welcome a Nielsen staff member on the show to discuss one of their commercial trends, will also blog about the topic through the lens of what that trend means for the sponsorship industry, specifically day-to-day, at your desk, as you're running around and doing your job, and then he'll come on the show to discuss it. And the blog title this time around is that IP owners controlling content and conversation will change sponsorship. Here's Mark to discuss exactly how and what you can do about it. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. Hi Daniel, how are you doing? Good. I don't have any jokes about travel or I've got nothing good to start this conversation <laughs> with. What have you what have you prepped? It has actually been a um unusually normal period of time for us hasn't mm. it like actually in the one spot for a while yeah. and getting restless not, not surprisingly it's been very productive <laughs> but um, it's funny how much work you get done when you're actually at work i was gonna say it's, it's funny how much work you get done when you actually work yeah um have you got any trips planned um i'm heading back over to the uk on the 25th of september so just about five or six weeks oh, yeah. um for three weeks we've got a uh, couple of conferences. Leaders? Um, is leaders on there? Yeah, leaders yep. week is on. It's a big week this time. It's a big... Tux? Big. Do you have to take your tux? Did no. you have to wear a tux to some event last time? Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, that was the leaders under 40 awards. Uh, I've gone backwards You've on got, the... You're past 40 now, so you're not no, eligible. I'm, I'm nowhere near 40, but uh, <laughs> oh, I am near it, but I'm not 40. But I, I've actually obviously gone backwards on the 
the hierarchy of, of success list because mm. I'm, I'm not on the invite list this year. You could look at it that you've inspired a completely new raft of people who have, have, have overtaken your success. How you know, about that? Do you know how I'm looking at it? No. <laughs> I don't need to take a, a tux. Mm. So that's a bonus on the packing. Yeah. But I'm going to have one less hangover. Oh, I'm sure you'll find something to do on that night. <laughs> <laughs> but let's focus on the now. Um, we're continuing our, uh, you might call it a semi-series because we do it every uh, once a month, but yep. we do podcasts in between, obviously, and blogs in between. But continuing our conversation around uh, Nielsen's commercial trends in sport 2017, and this trend is uh, trend number two, and it's IP owners taking control of content and the conversation that's not really a secret it's it's obvious that that that's happening and it's a clear trend yeah um but we're here to talk about the reasons mm. and why that what that means for sponsorship and what i'm finding about these nielsen um you know pieces that they've done they're quite brief but they're really well thought around in terms of thought-provoking materials so to, to write a blog on that you i have to get myself deeper into the actual you know, methodology behind it and the thought train of thought behind you know this topic and it, it really is quite um eye-opening when you actually drill down a little bit into what's happening subtly in the marketplace compared to sort of overtly mm. so it's it's, it's this, the series i feel is going to get more interesting as we go through but you always ask what this means for sponsorship don't you always it's good of you well it helps with the podcast content that's right it's it's like i'm a selfish sponsorship person that's it's all i think about when it comes when i read stuff <laughs> yeah so um because there's been some recent acquisitions um of, of sports such as ufc and formula one and that tells us a lot about the ability of sports to actually own the content and the ip and then you know either create or have a vision to create revenue from them well, as discussed in the Nielsen paper, the actual acquisitions of UFC and Formula One were as actually as much about the ability to own and control content and then commercialise that mm. as it was about you know buying um, properties that are commercially viable and would return a profit. So um, the, the, the actual penetration that those guys have into the marketplace and then the possibilities of further deepening that with additional content and ip ownership is what those sales were all about and that's what is interesting is that you've got some really sophisticated and well-resourced ownership groups coming into these organizations that have huge market penetration that that's that's what's exciting and interesting Mm. yeah so how will it change sponsorship look traditionally um you know there's, there's sort of a few standard mainstream broadcasters owned con- owned content and things like that and and but what we're seeing now is that sponsorship and, and this isn't new rights holders and brands they take advantage of content creation to engage fans and and you know the growth in that space and especially with digital technology improving that that is being used but how this will change sponsorship particularly is it, it opens it up to more than just a broadcaster or just a rights holder having control of that content because you've got rights holders that can do it directly commercial partners can now jump in and actually create some of their own content that they own and you've got you know ownership groups so you know people like your iegs and things like that that have purchased sporting teams esp um social channels themselves so facebook and that come into the ip ownership type of a conversation amazon we're seeing now mm. starting to enter some bidding processes the athletes themselves i mean look at the the you, you can subscribe to watch you know channels of certain athletes out there you know Le, lebron and things like that have their own subscription based it channels. seems like it's too much well i think it's just appealing to many appetites so it's breaking it down and so then the traditional board broadcasters then are forced to collaborate with any of those above groups to, to be able to get cut through themselves. So it's going to change how sponsorship's done. So, you know, IP owners controlling the content and then that's going to change how the, the way sponsorship's sold, it's going to change the way sponsorship's delivered and then ultimately how it's measured. And that'll all change, you know, with these additional rights. So remembering, you know, these are, are not just about changing how the rights are delivered, it's creating new rights mm. as well through these channels. And then companies coming into the marketplace will, will have more 
ability and appetite to come into the marketplace because they might not be somebody that wants to be seen on television. So those changes are clearly going to flow through to the makeup of partnerships. Your, yep. your, your, your schedule A in your contract about what you're getting and, and, and when and what channels and all that sort of stuff. Yep. How do you see that playing out? Because it's not just the same as just saying, oh, well, now you can do stuff on Facebook, watch, or well, you can stream on YouTube, sign here. Well, I mean, if we drill well, right down maybe it is, into, I don't know. If we, if we drill right down into, you know, traditionally there's just been you know, packages that have been sold which have been tailored towards certain um, industry segments or, you know, people have done a bit of a, a estimated sort of education, educated guess on, on which best categories suit their business which best categories suit their assets they've got. Let's put a package together and sell them. Pretty old school. But most people that are good at sponsorship are past that now. Yep. But you know, all, all our listeners. If if we we've got the we've got the benefit of having a, a quite a global client base. Um, so we see how sponsorships done in, you know, one side of the world in the UK, sitting in Australia, looking at the other side of the world in yeah. the US. Australia might be one side of the world depending where you are. It's underneath. Um, <laughs> and then and then Australia. You know, it sits sort of in a in a really different space. And the UK traditionally have all been about branding. It's always been front of shirt, mm. LED, signage, TV yeah. lights, hospitality. Very, even real focus on hospitality. Well, hospitality traditionally over there is not even seen as a sponsorship asset. It's actually sold separately. Mm. So um, it, the the sponsorship numbers, you know, we're talking less than ten sponsorship was quite normal in a top flight no activations around grounds particularly at football very little often because they were owned by different parties sort of like the the governing bodies used to own those and things and then then you look on the other side of the world in the u.s branding was not actually you know prominent on uniforms and shirts we're only just seeing small logo logos on the nba jerseys signage was quite minimal as well it's quite a clean stadia over there but it's all about customer engagement fan engagement community engagement the the you know, tailgate parties. The pa- yeah, I was just going to say the parties. We, if you listen yeah. back to um, Houston Dynamo, they talk about you know two different bar areas at the game. One that's family orientated and, yeah. and fun and stuff, and one where people just want to go and have beers and blow trumpets and Yahoo and drums and things like that. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, it's very different ways of looking at the at the ability to attract partners and then service and provide value to them. Here in Australia, we've got the best of both worlds. We're we're quite a large sporting landscape in terms of there isn't a definitive top sport there's probably mm. six or seven fighting for the to be the number one in the marketplace and, and people quite often like multiple sports yeah right and and therefore you've got you know the the challenge to get enough sponsors you know australia's not the biggest economy so enough sponsors to service and and provide you know enough funding to for those sports to run therefore you've got to be creative around what sponsorships you go after so you know it's not uncommon for a a top flight sporting organization australia to have 60 sponsors there's only about four of them that are on those branding pieces Mm. there's a lot of others then are at the community engagement levels but then you've got the other bits around digital and you've got other bits around actual just full-on grassroots community so depending where you are in in the world you've got all these different makes up traditionally of how sponsorship works now with the emergence of you know ip ownership coming back into the hands of the rights owners and and you know the content that they're generating it opens up opportunities for greater branding opportunities in the u.s sports market greater community and fan engagement in the uk market more commercialization opportunities in an australian market which is cluttered it actually doesn't matter where you are in the world it's going to help broaden the sponsorship portfolio of assets to be sold everywhere but does it does it diminish the value of the traditional branding pieces that are already in place look i don't think so because i think what it is is actually moving with the times to keep penetrating because you know, there's. I've got a few friends that don't watch any sport at all on their TV. Why are you friends with them? Um, oh, on their TV. I no. thought you were going to say they don't watch sport at all. <laughs> no, they say they. they you subs- should unfriend those people. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Um, so they won't even be listening. No, they to this, won't listen so. to this. <laughs> um, so. The, Hi to our chief technology <laughs> officer, by the way. Yeah, if you are listening, yeah, just by mistake. Um, you know, people subscribing to the channels that they want to to to. Watch those certain sports, live streaming and things like that. You look at, um, you know, the Premier League uh, football here in Australia. I know a guy, actually Sam in our office, subscribed to Optus 
for his broadband at home. Oh, I, subs- I watched the Leeds game on Saturday night. Just so he could... Well, he subscribed to Optus for his internet at home just so he could watch the Premier League. Yeah. And so, therefore, he can stream that and then on his phone and he sits in bed watching it, doesn't watch it on television. Um, he's choosing what he how he wants to consume sport. That's the real sort of um, key to what you just mentioned there around is it going to dilute? I, I actually think it'll augment the value of partnerships. I ask, I, I'm catching up with Max Bailey, head of digital from Nielsen, uh, later on today to record his uh, part that's coming up in the show. One of the things I said I'm going to say to him is I still don't think rights holders are getting it right in this space. So, for example, I'm a Leeds United supporter yep. and I, I'm going to marching on together. I'm going to ask him about the situation where there's a new platform rolled out by the EFL called iFollow where you can subscribe and watch games anytime right around the world. The problem is you have to watch them live. Yep. Now, I don't know if the, the, the FA and the EFL and all those people who live in England understand that there's different time zones, but for 38 games plus of a season, I don't want to be getting up at 2 or 3 o'clock every, every weekend to watch a game live. But you can't watch it on demand for two days. Yeah, well... So there's money there on the table and it's being left on the table because they can't figure out how to give it to people when they want. Well, I think the technology's got to catch up a little bit there. There's probably an element of that. We can put a man on the moon, apparently. Arguably. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) that's a different conversation. It's all done in a studio. The content, the man (laughs) on the moon, apparently. (laughs) It's all... You know what? It's all content. Yeah, exactly. If we did that again, there'd be branding on this... Red Bull would sponsor... Um, that Felix bloke to jump out. Yeah. yeah. No, he sponsored Neil Armstrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's comeback game. <laughs> Let's so, get back to business. Okay. So how can sponsorship professionals stay ahead of the game with this? There's some key things that they can do to make sure, because this is a bit of a period where some people have been doing it for a while. Some people have been doing it well. Um, a lot of people are starting to commercialise it mm. um, and there's new platforms being rolled out, you know, every couple of months and, and streaming services and things yep. like that. As a sponsorship professional, sitting at your desk with your boss asking what's going on, sponsors may be talking about the opportunities here. How do yeah. they stay ahead of the game? That's an interesting dynamic you just sort of alluded to there, being sponsorship professionals talking to their bosses because that they're, ahead, they're right there is the challenge, right? Talking so, to your boss? Well, no. If, if So, you know, obviously have a we're speaking to lots of people all over the place, but particularly in the UK, we, we talk to both our clients and those that are in the industry that aren't clients and they've they've got a recently expanded portfolio of benefits and inventory that they can start to sell yep that those at the top of the tree there the commercial directors and whatnot the chief revenue officers they just want to see the cash mm. so how can we haven't sold our sleeve yet how can we haven't sold both sides of the of the led the fan and you know pit side facing how can we haven't sold our geo-targeted things and, and got the most money for them um, because they're just looking at, oh, wow, we've got all these opportunities. We've got we've got staff. Let's go do it. And and the, the, what's the, sort of what the the kind of feeling is from the actual guys at the coalface is that you know having that expanded portfolio benefits and inventory comes with many challenges. Whilst it is exciting, they've got to actually stay ahead of the curve in terms of what those trends are, um, why they're there, what they're worth. And then actually hit the marketplace prepared, not just actually go throwing into it. Well, and the challenge is you, you, you can understand all of that, but if you're you're on the bleeding edge of some of that stuff, it's still hard to execute it well. You know, you're going to make yeah. mistakes. It might piss off your fan base and stuff yeah. like that. And then this sort of space in its own is even more challenging because it is so new. You know, ownership of your own IP, the generation of content to sell. What's that worth? How many of it? What? What's the quantity of your inventory that you should allow for that? It, it literally could be unlimited if you just took your, you know, put the foot down and went for it. You could sell unlimited amounts of it, mm. but you're going to lose the cut through. So what, what's the balance? And so, you know, that's why people like Nielsen are fully authorised to make these sorts of to write these sorts of papers <laughs> because they they actually go deep into that anal- analysis of what it is worth and why it's worth this and you know where, where where could the tipping point be that sort of thing and so the top three things i would say for any sponsorship professional to take advantage of this trend and new ones is be prepared and i, I don't mean just be like ready. a boy scout no i don't i don't mean be ready i don't mean by be like cool we know this is coming and be ready yes yeah 
we know this is coming. We're going to hit the market on the 1st of January. Like, what, what do you mean then? So, I mean, you've got to have systems at, at, within your um, business to, to cope with it. You've got to have tools at your disposal to be able to effectively sell across many channels that give you the right data to call upon so that you can fully maximise the commercial opportunities. Um, you have to have strategies in, in place and systems to manage the process from end to end. So, both in your pitch process, but also how you then deliver those to your partners. So, um, actually, you know, selling is probably the easiest bit. Then making sure you sell that again when it's a new asset, that's the challenge Mm. because you've got to show value straight away. All right. So, I'm prepared. I've got my systems in place. I understand the data. I've got what I need. I'd say then evolve how you sell. So the, the introduction of a new asset portfolio, you know, opens up opportunities away from your traditional sponsorship um, objectives and traditional target markets of who you'd sell to. Particularly geographically. Well, it all opens the door for things like challenger brands to enter the place where they might not have otherwise been able to afford to because they can run campaigns through you. You, you become almost like a, a the ability, if you really wanted to go down that path, is like a, an advertising marketplace for, for shorter periods of time. And so, you know, evolve your selling, know what your objectives are that align to that IP. So what objectives can you deliver to brands that align to that IP? And then open your eyes to go, well, those sets of objectives are really appealing to this industry sector, which we've never spoken to. Let's evolve our selling process to get there. So I'm prepared. I've yep. evolved my selling process. Yep. I make some sales, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, I've done well. Boss, pat me if, on the back. If you don't make sales, we can't get on to number three. Okay. Well, let's assume <laughs> I've made uh, 20 new sales this month. Yeah. Well done, mate. So What's next? You need to measure. Yes. You need to measure. Yes. You need to measure. Okay. So I'm measuring. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so, I mean, the opportunity to own and deliver your own content is going to give you great data. It's going to give you great insights, great connectivity with your fan base and your engaged audience. It actually has the opportunity to, to allow you to move for brand and rights holder side to move from borrowing an audience to owning an audience mm, absolutely which is huge you know when you're talking marketing and, and actually the ability to turn that into revenue massive differentiator yeah. so you know the data that comes along those will, will create create easier measurement tools than traditional so, you know, you're not just looking at eyeballs and then value and, and you know comparative spends and things like that you actually talk you can if you've got the right systems and tools in place, you can actually measure the commercial impact of those. Oh, you can measure, you know, right down to click-throughs from Correct. an ad in a video. Yeah, and so as a sponsorship professional, you need all those, all that data to deliver value to your partner, but also then to, to sell going into the future because when you enter a new space like this, you're, you're probably your first couple of transactions are not going to be what your, your ideal mm. sales price is going to be, right? So, so apart from measuring the data and insights and the trends, you, you can use those assets to to be flexible and to provide a continual you know value and then in, increase spends as you go on and measuring well with that that data particularly in digital channels if we just talk you know streaming and and things like that the data that you can collect around average viewing times unique watches yeah. how many times people have clicked through how that goes through to your shop so you might use it to sell I don't know deodorant if that's your deodorant partner yeah. um, and is that for people who don't necessarily have a deep understanding in this space, so if you think back oh, maybe 10 years ago with social media, it was something that people went, yeah, like well, we think that's going to be good, <laughs> but we don't really understand how it works yeah. and we'll just see how we go. So measuring, measuring, measuring and, yeah. and showing people the hard data, which is easy to collect in this space, in the digital space, is going to help you get some sales over the line or retain sponsors and upsell them because people understand data mm. but if they don't stream on a phone in bed at two o'clock in the morning on the other side of the world they don't necessarily get it and understand it so trying to and, and if it's not broken if their sponsorships are working okay they're like mm, well why change so yeah, the data right. helps build that whole story around it It'll, but it gives you the opportunity to actually sell to those reactive and proactive people mm. because you can go back and forth with data but you know that's what number two is about evolve your selling and i'd say the biggest sort of comparative to this type of you know movement in the industry is led I remember when LED first came on the market nine or ten years ago, and it was all these opportunities and possibilities about what can be done. And, and but wow, it's expensive. Yeah, the return is huge. Yeah, it was actually, you know, a no, it's a no-brainer nowadays. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So where do you think this is all heading? 
Um, look, I, I think that the um, the ability to control conversations um, is going to have huge impacts commercially. Um, but I, I actually have a, a, a pretty specific thought where I think the, the, the growing trend of TD, TV deals, rights, TV rights deals, is, is probably um, going to be the casualty of all this in terms of the main source of revenue for, for rights owners. Um, you know, we're already seeing those sorts of conversations in, you know, the AFL in Australia and cricket and the rugby league where they kind of know that they're, you know, the glory days of 20% growth year on year on their TV deals is probably... Mm. or even more is is kind of coming to an end so i think the broadcasters um collaborating directly with rights owners and you know brands and things like that is probably something that will start to emerge and then the use of sort of technology to create content in partnership with between broadcasters and yeah and the rights owners is probably you know the next sort of revenue stream and, and you look at things like data and I was reading something the other day about the GPS analytics of the athletes that run around, you know, wearing the, the sort of tracking. The devices. bras. The bras. <laughs> yeah, the man bras. Um, and so the, the, there was a right, there's a rights holder who's fighting for the right to own that data. And the reason being is that they can then sell it to the broadcaster. Hmm. Well, you can so use it in analysis and all content. sorts of stuff. Well, then the broadcast can create live content. Though. Well, we saw that with um, State of Origin here in Australia with GPS trackers mm. and the, the commentators actually talking about it in the broadcast and right. analysing it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that that's probably that, that generation of content for the broadcasters by the rights owners um, to create a more engaging product. Well, I, I see opportunities as you're talking there. If you've got that content... And you talk about, you know, aspiring young athletes. You can turn that data into benchmarking data. And if you want to be like Coutinho or Messi or, I don't know, Luke Hodge, then you can have a look at that data and say, this is how I'm, how I'm tracking. This person makes, you know, and actually have it on your phone and have it customised. And then, you know, you can bring in partners around nutrition and fitness and, and, and build training programs and, yeah. and back that onto your academy and all sorts of stuff. Like it's a wormhole, that data. No, no, exactly right. And we're seeing that, you know, even the predictive analysis there during the Tour de France, we saw the commentators predicting who was going to make a break and when with amazing accuracy. I could never stay awake long enough. <laughs> I watch about 15 minutes and then I'll find myself I'm asleep. I all, love it. That's all off the data. That's yeah. all off the, the you know historical data of that athlete, The what the, the GPS tracking that they're wearing, yeah. um, the tactics of the team. and The course profile, all, of that, all sort, that sort of and stuff. Then, and yeah. then they predict, okay, we think in the next sort of couple of minutes this guy should make a break for it. And then... You know what? Ninety five percent of the time it happened. Yeah, watch out when the gambling uh, gambling gets involved. Who's going to make gambling the next already use that predictive predictive stuff? No, it's I mean, just not as accurate. Yeah, <laughs> the, um, I need to get my hands on that. Um, yeah, so right. but I thought Luke Hodge was only um, so great because of light and easy. There's that. Well, there's a sponsorship opportunity. <laughs> so um, if you want to uh, read the full uh, version of that blog, um, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the resources, and then the blog section, and it's all there. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Max Barnett, Global Head of Digital at Nielsen Sports, is a creator and connector. Through his career, he has excelled at identifying clients' objectives and then building digital services and products to achieve those objectives. Max is comfortable connecting digital with core business functions and stakeholders, and he has a, a strong track record in developing relationships and teams in this area. Uh, and from a diverse range of industry as well, from sports and entertainment right through to pharmaceuticals. Most recently, he has built Nielsen's digital function from scratch. He's responsible for new product development, most notably their social media valuation product, which interestingly delivered 80-plus valuations in under a year, along with a number of other services that are helping global rights holders maximise their commercial success. And his team work with both commercial and marketing communication sides of both rights holders and brands. Now, Max is regarded as an industry expert in digital return on investment, and that's because he has a strong understanding of how digital can positively impact rights holders' revenue streams from sponsorship right through to ticketing. His data and team's recommendations have, have then been at the heart of a number of high-profile sponsorship deals over the last 18 months. Here's Max to discuss the trend of 
IP owners taking control of content and conversations. Max Barnett, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. Um, we always kick off uh, the show with a few easy icebreaker questions uh, for the guests, um, you know, just to get the juices flowing, help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Nothing too serious. First question is, okay. apart from the obvious answers of family members, pets, laptops, and a mobile phone, if your house was on fire, what's the first thing you're going to make sure you grab on your way out? Um. Am I allowed to say photos? I know that's an obvious one, but... You photos, can say photos. Memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but photos of uh, family, family holidays, family events, that sort of thing. Very good. A second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Um, my first ever job was, I, th- I, I must have been thir- 13, 14, and over the summer holidays, I lay patios, so... Uh, yeah, I, was, I worked with a building company laying patios. Very good. That sounds like hard work. <laughs> yeah, it was. No, it's really good for rugby training, actually, <laughs> um, hauling around slabs uh, of concrete and that sort of thing. And I remember the guy I worked with said, it's, it's not what you earn, it's what you learn. So I'm not sure. I haven't yet laid another patio. <laughs> <laughs> well, from laying patios to now being the global head of digital at Nielsen Sports is a, a fair journey. What's that, what's that been like? What's been your progression into your current role? Um, I'd say it certainly hasn't been linear. Um, I started my career in, in Asia. So straight out of university, I spent two years on, on a, something called the JET program, which is the Japanese Ministry of Education cultural exchange program. So you teach English and learn Japanese. So I did that for a couple of years. And then shortly after, um, went to move to Shanghai, where I worked in uh, market research uh, recruitment, um, actually working for Nielsen, <laughs> Nielsen was one of my clients. Um, and then, uh, then decided it was best. I came back to uh, came back to London and, and started my I suppose my career proper with um, Accenture, um, the management consulting uh, company. And then, uh, short you know, four or five years later, um, after that, I joined I joined Repticom. Repticom were acquired by Nielsen, and that's where that's where I am now. And, and you're there now as the global head of digital for Nielsen Sports. Tell us a little bit about that job. Yeah, so before I joined um, Repnicom, I think we were we were still figuring out exactly what our role was going to be in in the digital revolution. Um, so my my role and my role continues to be a sort of I wear a couple of hats. So the first one is is product leadership. Um, so that's um, defining product strategy and going out and building building products for our clients. So most notably recently um, we built a uh, and just launching very, very soon, actually, a, a, an online portal that surfaces kind of base camp, but it surfaces media valuation, including uh, digital and social media valuation data. Um, the other, the other hat I wear is is um, more of a consulting consulting hat. So face to face with with our global client base, um, kind of working through with our clients how they use our data, both valuation, but also social media listening to. To ensure, basically, acquire, engage, um, and monetize the fan base. So, a couple, couple of roles, both product and and kind of consulting and, uh, and and client servicing. Sounds busy. So, we appreciate your time, and we invited you on the show as our next Nielsen guest in our series to talk about one of the trends from Nielsen's Commercial Trends in Sports 2017, and that trend is IP owners taking control of content and the conversation. Max, why would a rights holder want to own content production, particularly when you look at live broadcasts? Surely it's just easier to take a big fat check with lots of zeros on it from the broadcast deal and let someone else make the content and get it out to people. Yeah, I suppose it really depends what your sponsors want and what your target sponsors want. Um, certainly the sponsors who are looking for more exposure um, and you know eyeballs on logos may well actually work with a broadcaster or a technology platform who can offer the, the largest number of eyeballs which then they can con- kind of convert into a media value but increasingly brands are becoming sponsors are becoming more sophisticated and what they're really looking for is 
is a much deeper, richer understanding of who those people are. They will likely sacrifice um, you know, cumulative numbers across multiple platforms for actually a much, much more clear view of who those fans are on those platforms. So therefore, for a, for a rights holder, um, you will see increasingly they're investing in their own production of content because, number one, they own the data, um, and number two, they can employ strategies that harvest as much data as possible, which they can then use you know, either to, to engage and offer more, more one-to-one uh, content experience or you know, understanding far more about who that fan and therefore consumer is for, for their sponsors. You, you talk about platforms and channels and the, 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 the platforms available and the content being produced has just exploded in recent times. Every month there's an announcement of a new service and last week it was Facebook Watch and I read recently that Disney's going to pull their movies off Netflix because they want to launch their own streaming service. The market is getting more and more fragmented and while it's easier for brands to be creating content, it is I think, becoming harder for consumers to easily consume it because there's just so many platforms. Do you, do, you know, do you see the market consolidating channels eventually or is this just what it's going to be like from now on? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because it points towards the role the rights holder plays here as a content aggregator. You're right, content is exploding, it's exploding, exploding across different platforms, but that that is where potentially the rights holders, the teams, the leagues can aggregate that and, and make that more of a seamless experience. Content may live on multi, lots of different platforms, but the rights holder can, can do that. And I think sport's quite unique in that respect because if you look at you know, um, similar challenges in music, music sits on lots of different platforms as well. But you know, it's not like you can follow one artist and one artist only and get all of your music and, and content through that. But in sports, you, you can, and increasingly you'll see the more sophisticated rights holders use their website and their app to harvest all of that or, or, or collect all of that, um, um, all of that content or provide links out to, to content with broadcasters and other, other people hosting that content. Who would you say is already creating and distributing content well, and why is that? So I think looking at, without going in, I think when you talk about, especially digital and social, so what, what kind of fits under the, the, the umbrella I'm responsible for, you can often get, I think, um, a bit distracted by, by content, i.e., a, you know, when people call a, describe something as a, a cool piece of content, a viral piece of content, <laughs> I think that can be distracting because what I think, um, often what we look at is, I, is, you know, if I go back to my point earlier in terms of data collection, I think people who are creating and distributing content well are those that are capturing content every, uh, every touch point. So, um, therefore, I would, I'd, I'd look at the major leagues um, and teams who are either investing or collaborating with the likes of Microsoft, SAP, because they have underlying technology uh, that have been used by, you know, for you know, 10, 15 years by brands in terms of how they collect information on their customers and provide you know, bespoke offers or bespoke um, content to those, to those customers. So therefore, as I said, you, it points towards the big leagues and the teams who who are clearly working with those types of um, types of organisations. So, if you look at, for example, Real Madrid um, and the the work that they're already doing with Microsoft, I, I know it's an obvious one. It's pretty obvious, pointing towards one of the biggest clubs in the world on, on <laughs> social. Um, but but it will be interesting to see how. What, what's the impact? What's the type of experience that that uh, Microsoft can offer off the back of that data collection? On the flip side, what mistakes have you seen rights holders make so far on the on the content content production front? So, so I think that some of the some of the biggest mistakes that I think we're seeing, and I, I, you know, people are dipping their toe into the water. I think we're we're very early on in this journey in terms of content 
uh, producers or, or, or IP pro, um, owners bringing that content back in-house. But I think caution is probably the, the biggest um, mistake I've seen so far, especially as it pl- applies to social content. Um, I think if you, if you look at the type of um, fan who is, you know, spends more time on, on, their, on their smartphone and more, more time on digital and social than they do in front of the TV, um, that points towards the type of content that they they want to see and they want to enjoy. So it's all around authenticity. So I think there are you know a handful maybe of of, of clubs of leagues that are really doing this well. I think there's still you can still see it every day from a lot of rights holders and 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 um, out there that they're producing quite quite clean, quite corporate communication, mm. and that's just not gonna excite uh, a fan base um, that, that's predominantly on their smartphone, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, absolutely. It's a very uh, an interesting point about the uh, the hesitation. Uh, Max, different channels mm. will offer different types of uh, content, obviously, and that impacts the value it can deliver an audience. Which platforms do you see as offering the most value to rights holders and, and how does a right holder know what channels they should actually be focusing on? Because there, there is a lot and they've got limited resources sometimes, well, a lot of the time. Yes, definitely. I, so through our, so we launched last season um, our syndicated social media valuation product called Social24 um, and through that, that gives us a really clear picture um, in terms of what the most valuable social media platform is. And by, by value, I mean in this sense, the um, media equivalency value that they can report back to, to brands. And we see Facebook as head and shoulders above the rest in terms of driving both impressions, but also critically in- engagement. So we're seeing um, typically clubs who are part of this syndicated product drive 60, 70% of their um, value media value through through Facebook. I think that's you know, number one. It's the, the Facebook the reach Facebook has as a platform. It's it's, it's whopping. Um, who's not on Facebook? Um, but it's also the way that Facebook continues to evolve its product um, and the tools that they can therefore offer to to um, content publishers on the, on that platform. Um, interestingly, though, if you look away from social, so when we compare social versus um, web and app, it's there when you see large rights holders who have pro- uh, content and, and games like the fancy games. That makes a really interesting, um, uh, holds a really interesting sway on in terms of share of, of value. So if you look at the types of value being driven through um, fantasy apps, um, it's whopping because that's a that's a sticky product, um, and it's a product fans will continue going back to, and they're drop therefore drive um, drive um, engagement um, and impressions, and therefore media value. Well, talking about the media value, and and I mentioned big fat checks before from broadcast deals. How does the changing ownership and content generation impact those large scale? broadcast deals and how would how will this then flow on and impact on athlete contract values that's that's a great question um because what what we'll be doing so as an independent um kind of company in the in in the industry what we'll be doing is sourcing um data from lots of different touch points and aggregating that into a media value that sits across tv print um, web, app, and, and social. Um, and some of those channels teams can control, some of those can't. So what increasingly t- clubs are doing is identifying, or, or leagues are, are identifying, what assets can I bring in-house and therefore control and drive value. Um, so interestingly, if you look at um, organizations like the NFL, looking at um, lots of different new, new content streams that can potentially reach new audiences like Hard Knocks or their collaboration with, with Amazon um, uh, called All or Nothing. So they're looking at owning and building new, new assets, but also you'd see rights holders and teams look at, to your point, players. So what, what can the players 
what what kind of reach can the players offer? What type of engagement can can the the the, the players offer? The athletes offer, and therefore, how can tr- contracts be structured to include that value? But what I'd say is that certainly in in football, we're we're only just beginning to see that, and you can see, you know, with the recent court ca- court cases in Spain with with Messi and Ronaldo, the industry and the tax laws are gen uh, 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 are struggling or still figuring out exactly where the media value and the value in as a whole lies. If that makes sense. Mm, no, it does make sense, and. And I think it's one that'll, you know, that answer will become a little bit clearer over the next few years as that sort of stuff starts yeah, to play out. Definitely. Many. But what I'd say is, yeah, go on. It, it, no, what I'd say is, you, you, you really got to follow where, where the sponsors are looking. So if you look at the increasing roster that brands are, are looking to to bring on in terms of influencers and ambassadors. Um, and how to leverage and how brands are using those um, those influencers and ambassadors, social media followers. So if you look at the way that you know, for example, Nike and Adidas use their roster, there's clear value, and and brands are very very attracted by that. Um, so if you therefore if you follow that kind of logic of you know brands are looking there, that that means that rights holders should definitely be looking at the the types of agreements that they should be having with their with their um, roster and the types of assets that they should be carving out uh, in digital and social but also kind of offline as well mm, very interesting um many in the marketing and content space and so not traditionally in the particularly if we talk about sports and and rights holders uh, specifically but many in the marketing and the content space for some time now have you know we're talking five maybe eight years have spruiked that that brands and in this context i mean rights holders not those brands who are sponsoring that they should see themselves as as publishers and that means creating content and a few of those reasons you were, you spoke about before are that they can take control of the message and it builds you know long-term trust around uh, a brand and engagement with that brand but for me, none of that really matters unless it ultimately leverages into more income somewhere down the line eventually. Is is the play with, with creating your own content to, to mostly focus on just the subscription income alone? Is it two, selling ads and sponsorship around that content? Or is it three, focusing on the subscription income and building an audience to then leverage that and recover costs and then, you know, progress the audience into selling other things like jerseys or hospitality suites and things like that? Where's the play for the income Mm. here? I I think it's both. You know, uh, rights holders and teams will be looking at um, both of those key revenue streams that you mentioned. So um, ideally subscription, but that's a, that's a real challenge because then you're looking at a certain type of fan and a certain segment of that, that fan base and, and looking at their sort of tolerance to, to paying for content and what content and then how do you deliver those different kind of content categories. So it's, it's certainly possible, but it's, um, it's, not, it's not easy. Um, and, 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 you know, we've mentioned it a few times, that relies on a huge amount of data around who those fans are. You know, people say data is the new oil, kind of in our industry. I think, yeah, there's plenty of data, but I don't think people quite know. Or pe- uh, you know, we're only just beginning to understand what to do with, with that oil. Yeah, well, we, we can um, build on that analogy and say we need to learn how to refine the oil. Yeah, yeah, refine. Yeah, let alone find where the uh, where the kind of car is. Yeah. In, you know what I mean? Um, but um, but so so I think yeah. On, in terms of that that um, subscription model, that'll that'll work. Like I said, for for, um, for you know a very loyal fan base. So you know if you look at in Japan, for example, a huge amount of clubs' revenue in Japan is through membership of sub- and subscription. Um, so you know they have loyal fan bases there. So I'm sure opportunities to monetize that loyalty um, and that existing pay scheme, um, you know, may continue. I think where you'll see, um, where you'll see major rights holders um, and leagues justify further investment in, you know, growing a, a a production team or investing in a piece of technology is when they can start seeing revenue directly attributed to content creation. Hmm. 
So, for example, you know, the, the, the concepts that we are, that we consult on a lot at uh, Nielsen Sports globally is identification of content themes. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the content being produced is exploding. But if you can categorize that content into, for example, training content or behind the scenes content or fan related content, you can start publishing and posting that content across multiple platforms. But you can also start linking a sponsor to that type of category, what we call a fan story, um, and therefore, uh, you know, drive direct revenue from those content themes. Mm. So when they are producing, they're categorizing that content, they're producing that content, uh, you know, we think that they're doing it in-house, but should rights holders be really concentrating on building fully skilled in-house teams and truly owning that content production? Or should they really be, you know, maybe building the bare minimum in terms of skills and and team size and then partnering with others who potentially have much more skill um, and equipment to bring to the table and and partner with those others to actually bring that content to fulfilment? Should they go in-house or out-house or maybe in between? Yeah, I think, you know, there are some, first up, there are some incredible agencies out there who do that, that kind of second part you mentioned incredibly well and service primarily quite a lot of quite a lot of events so um, not all year round so all year round events um, you know have a have a clearer justification or um, a more obvious justification of investing in in production capability but you know smaller events that run for a month a year or two weeks a year um, if you think about the tennis um, tennis tournaments then then that may be a, a kind of an obvious starting point for them to think about how they go about producing better content. Um, I think the clubs that are the clubs and leagues that are investing most in those in-house production capabilities, um, and that you know you look at I, I suppose in where, where you're from, though Australia, you look at the investment AFL may have made in terms of the content that they can produce in-house. I think they they that that investment is enabled because there's a uh, an overarching monetization strategy there. They're not, uh, and, and also the, the, you know, the, the, um, the opportunity to, to engage a, a fan base, um, more and more, but also engage new fan bases as well through, through different types of content that, that, that a big production team can, can, can produce. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting situation there with the AFL. They've been on that train for a long time. And if we were to contrast that with, say, football in the UK, the AFL are, are, are leading the way on producing the program that covers all of the games for the entire weekend. So it's not left up to the clubs like it is in yeah. the UK. They partner with a sponsor in, in Telstra, which is the biggest um, phone carrier in the country. And uh, you can watch through the AFL app, so it's not fragmented through the clubs with their own streaming services. You can watch games uh, live through the AFL app without using your data if you're a Telstra customer. So I think that, you know they've got a, they've got a much more tightly confined space in Australia with that type of sport. So they're very lucky. Mm. Yeah. So um, look, getting a little bit down into the weeds, just for one question, and then we'll come back up. If if a rights holder is you know they've got small budget, small team, it's a bit sort of we've got to do this sort of stuff in-house and give it our best shot. iPhones are pretty good these days, but professional equipment, obviously, like lighting and, and, and HD cameras, etc., takes it to a complete different level. Yeah. If we take video for an example, how are those people who are in-house and creating their own video content, how, how do you see them capturing it? You know, I, I would say, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's all around... If you're delivering content pr- predominantly for your for your smartphone, and let's make therefore the assumption that that demographic who are consuming that content are a certain age, then I think there are opportunities to invest far less in sort of professional equipment and actually go um, iPhone first. Number one, iPhone <laughs> iPhone first is still pretty good quality, yeah. but also it does give it that. Secondly, it sort of does give it that authentic feel. Um, especially if you are looking to produce content like behind the scenes at the training ground, that that type of content, I'm um, sure it can be can it, it can be produced through through the iPhone. On that point, I'd say you you'd want to go you'd want to go sort of resource people as opposed to technology first. Yeah. I think you would you'd be wanting to go out and 
capturing as much content as possible on the iPhone to then use, you know, use it later that day. But likewise, cameras are pretty much running the whole time in, in you know, big, big clubs and leagues, um, uh, whether that's through someone's iPhone or just a, you know, a, a camera that's set up capturing training content throughout. Um, for the reason that you, you can produce it and send it out that afternoon or, you know, you, there are so many content themes that you could, that you could, you know, in all likelihood, you know, post that two years later. Um, so it's all about capturing as much content as possible. Yeah. Um, I suppose when, when you're that, when you're down at the training ground, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And they sift through it later. Do you, um, do you think the trend of taking control of content production will mean rights holders and brands will actually co-produce content more? Or do you think it will still fall more to the rights holder to be producing all that content? You know, you're talking about cameras having running pretty much the whole time at a club and then building an audience and engagement with that audience and then the brand coming in and piggybacking on that with traditional ads and branding in and around the content? Or is there another option? I think that's the... The ideal, if you look at the lead, certainly where I'm based in London, but this is as true in London as it is, um, you know, in the NBA um, as well. What, what, what I think a leading clubs are doing is identifying those, those, those content themes first and capturing those and producing them in a, in a, in an authentic way. And then looking to collaborate with rights holders around that content. Because if, if brands, if sponsors just want ads that look to sell their tires or, you know, their, um, their, their computer software, then they can, they can walk down the street and there, I'm sure there are plenty of ad sales guys at Facebook that would be willing <laughs> to give them a bespoke, you know, targeted ad, um, and, um, you know, for, for fairly decent rates. So what is it about the content that the rights holder is producing? Is it exclusivity? Is it timely? Timeliness is it the the, the premium the the, the the premium nature of the content that really offers um, the sponsor something genuinely different to to a standard advert. We spoke before about uh, athletes and 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 we touched on their ability to be broadcasters and and even have control of their channels and create their own content. One view is that. At the moment, those athletes who are successful on that front, that that's only possible at this kind of a sweet spot in time because those athletes are successful in this space and have a profile which they leverage. But that's actually been grown from traditional channels which had a lot of eyeballs. Do you think future athletes will find it harder to actually build their own audiences in this sea of channels and content all competing for our attention globally? Um, with athletes, it's about knowing what your fans like. You know, clubs do not have rights to players' content that they shoot from home or, or that type of content. Fan, it's a content that fans increasingly, increasingly like. So for athletes, it's about knowing what content you can produce that different, that's differentiated from club, traditional club content. And then, you know, if you've got the, if you've got the agents, if you've got the, the team behind you producing that type of content that will continue to remain relevant and commercially valuable moving forward. This one's isn't so much a question, but a little bit of an outline of a situation. And it's a, it's a touch long. I'm going to explain it, but I'm going to give you mm. free reign to respond at the end. So maybe, you know, okay. you, might, you might offer some advice. Um, you, maybe you'll sympathize. It's, a, it's up to you. So um, I'm, a Leeds, okay. I'm a Leeds United supporter marching on together, but I live on the other side of the poor, world. Poor, poor you. Yeah, <laughs> we all have our cross to bear. I've been known <laughs> to pay an extra $15 a month for additional pay TV channels through Foxtel in Australia so that when Leeds actually do play a televised game, I can watch it. But the thing is, I would often record the game and get up early on the weekend and watch it without checking the score. So I'd turn my phone completely off so that I can actually enjoy the game. Um, well, if we won anyway, because losing is never uh, very enjoyable. But now those channels in Australia, so B in sports on Foxtel, they haven't got their end sorted out. And there is no deal at the moment to show the championship games that are televised by Sky to piggyback into Australia, despite them actually striking deals in other countries. So 
not all is lost. The EFL this season has launched iFollow, which is billed as a platform for global yeah. fans, right? So that sounds perfect. I'm super excited. Well, it would be if Leeds have actually were one of the clubs that signed onto that platform, but instead they've gone down the owned content path, but they're only allowed to show the games that aren't chosen to be shown on Sky. Now, remember that that now means I can't see those Sky televised games in Australia because there is no deal struck with BN Sports through Foxtel to bring those yeah. to Australia, right? So the non-televised games are streamed live through the Leeds TV platform, but the problem is... So many people are complaining online that the streams don't work, they can't log in, they crash, it's not proper HD. And further, the global fan, like me, I want to watch that game on a little bit of a delay, not at 2am or 3am because, you know, 46 games or so through every Saturday and weekend in a row is pretty tough for an old bloke like me to handle, right? So the games are available in full later on, but it's two days later, so it's hardly worth it. I can't avoid the result and actually enjoy the game. Now, the reality is that I'm a fan who, and this I think this is a really important point for, for a lot of people to consider, that... I am a fan who is willing to spend money, at least $5 a week or so, to watch that content on demand, good quality, when I want. Yet no one can actually figure out how to deliver it and take my money off me. And I don't think it is as simple in today's global economy and when you have such a a widely distributed fan base like football teams do, to simply stream live games and think you're doing a Good job. What do you make of all that? So am I right in saying the the major criticism you have of I, I follow is is the fact that um, it, is it it only shows uh, leads aren't subscribed, right? Correct. So there's no so they can't join. But what do you think if you weren't a Leeds fan and you were another you were another Championship fan? Would that would that product? It would if it was on demand, like I could replay that game, you know, three hours later. Absolutely yeah. it would be. I'd be willing to get up in the middle of the night to start the game and pause it and come back. Yeah. You, you can't do well, that through I Leeds think- TV. If you pause it and then press start again, it just picks up at the point where you push play. So it just skips five minutes ahead if you duck off to the toilet or something. Yeah, and, there, and there's the challenge, right? Because you either go... As a, as a group, and that enables you to invest in a great piece of technology like iFollow and continually evolve the product, i.e. You know, offering it on demand later. Or you go with the Leeds TV platform, which then enables you to try and build the product you think the majority of your fans need. But as you pointed to, to, to some of the problems... Those those pieces pieces of technology are incredibly difficult and expensive expensive to maintain, and you need a support staff to keep them up and running. Right? Otherwise, that that trust is lost, and that willing fan base that you know, that loyal fan base like yourself are going to turn off and go elsewhere. What what we haven't talked about also is is um, illegal streaming as well, which, <laughs> and, and that that content that that content sits sits elsewhere and that can be consumed the whole time as well so i think i you know ideally what you want is an an iFollow type product right but that everyone subscribes to that enables on demand watching in in all markets and that that is way easier said than done Mm. and that requires everybody to act as a group and not individuals but all of this will come down to well what's the how much will, I suppose, leads have to contribute or how much will leads get out of that? What are the follower sizes? Um, and also, I'm sure, I'm sure there, there, there are also concerns not, not only about piracy, but um, uh, I suppose there, there, there'll be concerns about um, whether that will cannibalize existing broadcast deals um, and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly complicated. For all my whinging, Max, I'm still going to get up at 4.45 a.m. tomorrow morning and pay my $8 Australian. I'm going to watch the game. So, 
You're a lot. Well, I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> no, it worked. It worked. It worked on the week. It worked on the weekend. So uh, fingers crossed. There was a couple of glitches from time to time, but by and large, it was okay. Max, great chat. Very insightful into what is both um, and and exciting and and but still a pretty uncertain environment um, around the world. If people want to get in contact with you, what can they do? Um, LinkedIn is great for me, or or Twitter. Um, so Max, I'm sure your details, maybe we can drop in the, in the podcast details. Yep. Sounds good. Max Barnett, global head of digital Nielsen sports. Thank you so much for taking us inside the trend of IP owners, taking control of content and the conversations. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome chat with Max and off air, as we finish, he mentioned to me that he thought that the interview maybe went a little bit quick, and initially I felt the same, but looking at the timing, it was pretty much bang on, so I think it just comes down to just how big an area this is, and just how many opportunities and, and subsequent challenges there are for both rights holders and brands to get it right, so I think it's probably one of those interviews where you can go back and, and listen to it again and get great value from it. I know Max has been travelling a bit lately and playing catch-up in the office, so a big thank you for fitting us in and, and sharing with the listeners. Don't forget to head to sponsor.net to read Mark's blog, and of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or the podcast direct to your inbox each and every week, then shoot me an email or sign up at sponsor.net and we'll sort that out for you. Also in the show notes for this episode is a link to Nielsen's Commercial Trends in Sport 2017. If you haven't read it yet, then do yourself a favour and get to it. Also, if you haven't already, do us a massive favor and head to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews help others just like you in the industry find the podcast and learn from others. So it is really important and we hope you can help. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net. And of course, you can connect with Mark on LinkedIn or email at mark at sponserve.net. And don't forget that you can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.